City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, City Limits, it's our energy day and it's the second Wednesday of the month, so look, a bit of energy involving water. So why don't we open the show by just having the pouring of tea (laughs) as it belts the teapot, belts into the microphone. (laughs) There we are. Cup one. There was something about energy in the... Herald Sun today, Kevin. Did you see that? No, I haven't seen the Herald Sun yet today. Well, I, I today. Oh, watch out! Oh, <laughs> yes, there we are. The, the, the techs who look after this studio are live in terror every time you're in here pouring tea. tea that's yeah. Right. yeah, I'm sure. That's yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and why not give them a thrill? Exactly. You've got to get excited about something. Yeah. Anyway, what's in the Herald Sun? Oh, something about solar rebates. I didn't see it. I just oh, saw the right. headline okay. when I was having a snack yes, this morning. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. yeah, well, we're going to have actually, we're going to go to our first, not our first interview, but someone else's first interview very yeah. quickly because it's 28 minutes of it. But uh, a bloke called Greg... Um, Milson, Greg, I just told his name and I've already forgotten it, Greg. Anyway, he, he'll, he'll come up very shortly, but he's a, he's a fire expert from Sydney and there's a program here at 6am, so I don't think we'll get many dual listeners, 6am um, <laughs> um, on Sunday mornings, but when I turn on the radio, this show called Radio Echo Shocks on from a, with a Canadian bloke called Alex Smith and for those who are awake at that time, it, it's a very good program. Mm-hmm. Worth listening to, but last Sunday he interviewed this um, Sydney um Sydney uh, fire expert Greg mm-hmm. Mullins that was his name Greg Mullins yep. and um, and it was an excellent interview about the, the fire danger not just in Australia created by climate change and the ongoing but also um, around the world all over the world the changes in temperature the changes in climate the changes in wind and everything else mm-hmm. um, and indeed I woke up this morning turned on the news and the first item was um, bushfires and, and homes uh, destroyed in northern New South Wales or parts of Queensland mm. And you know, throughout September, October, which is so rare, we're seeing these massive fires already. And uh, mm-hmm. so he's going to talk about it's a pretty. It's not not the most cheery thing, obviously, but it's uh, very important really? in terms of energy and climate change. Yeah. Absolutely. So we'll go to that shortly. In the second half, we're going to be talking to Helen Vandenberg, our, one of our regular irregular uh, um, experts, who who in fact uh, is a great, everyone knows, a great activist in the particularly in the northwestern suburbs. And um, there's a new development in relation to the toxic waste dump at Tullamarine that she's been campaigning on for years, which would indicate that uh, the company has effectively, and the EPA perhaps to a degree, have effectively thrown their hands in the air and said, well, it's as good as we're going to get it, and that's it. Bad luck. It'll be good to speak to her again. Yeah, so we'll talk to Helen in the second half. I'm going to have a sip of tea now, Mick. That sounds oh, good. Is it who we are? Tell them who you are, Mick. Well, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. And by the way, you can also podcast this show. Oh. Yeah, for people who have mobile phones. It's right. a thing. I'll explain it later. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but you can look at 3cr.org.au and, and podcast City Limits. And I, some people do. 
Someone I know came up to me at something else that I do in my life and said that she'd been listening to City Limits on podcasts. Well, there you are. I was thinking, you know... There's at least one. (laughs) There is at least one. But you didn't say that you were Meg Kimber in the middle of all that, which was... Oh, well, I'm Meg... (laughs) My name's Meg Kimber. (laughs) And I'm Kevin Healy, and this is City Limits. And we... In fact, I was thinking earlier, 6 a.m. Sunday, we're pretty safe. There wouldn't be that many people who would have heard it. But then again, in this program, 9 a.m. Wednesday, we can't be that sure either. (laughs) (laughs) Well, who knows? (laughs) Exactly. Who knows? Um, but anyway, um, just before we do go to that um, that interview Alex Smith had with Greg Mellons, um, this this seems to me to be the height of hypocrisy, uh, as we as we see the fight around Ararat and other areas saving trees yeah. and trees being destroyed by Vic Roads and whatever it's now land. called yeah. the, the Roads Authority. Thousands of trees are said to be sourced from Melbourne nurseries under a massive replanting program organised for the North East Link project. Oh, my gosh. Oh, they're going to plant 30,000 extra trees. Um, isn't that wonderful? They're also going to tear 16,000 down. Mm. Many of them are years and years old, including that red river gum, the river red gum in Pauline yeah. that um, we must talk to someone about at some stage because right. that's yep. really important. But it's virtually an ad. It's in the Herald Sun. But the bottom line said, the last paragraph in the article says nurseries can register interest at northeastlink.vic.gov.au so it's a plug to get uh, money for nurseries. Classic failing um, of capitalism to think that there's just this easy equivalency between one tree and another when you know places are right. ecosystems they're very that's unique. That's right birthing yeah. trees means yeah. something to, uh, to people yeah. to the people affected. The First Nations. We've also this week had it's interesting I'm just, and then we'll, we'll go straight after this mm-hmm. um Angus Taylor, our energy minister, whose only concern is reliability and cost and climate change doesn't come into it. I mean, um, yeah, reli- uh, they're not doing that good on reliability and cost. No, 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 no that's right. Well, they're, they're failing on all fronts. Mm. But but he he came up this week in, with the fact that Australia, you know, he claims that we're, we're being attacked for not doing enough in renewables and not doing enough to address climate change. But his response was that per capita... We're, we're building more renewable energy than anyone else, Rick, per capita. So he uses per capita for that. <laughs> but when other people say yeah. on climate change, they keep saying, but we're, we're, you know, our, our contribution is so worst. small it's irrelevant. Yeah. But per capita, capita, we're the highest in the world. But yep. that per capita doesn't count. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You it, can use the per, cata- per capita how you like. That's right. You can that's give, right. It, give and take it, yeah. It counts for his argument, but doesn't count when it's against him. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's the simple matter. Yep. Look, we'll go to this um, interview with um, Alex Smith. It's introducing itself, I think, probably, but Greg Mullins, an Australian expert firefighter, and um, Alex Smith. It's a 28-minute interview, so um, we'll let back. it run. Yeah. Sit back. Massive wildfires have appeared on every continent except Antarctica. Now it is hitting Australia, even at the end of winter there, with temperatures about 10 degrees C, over 20 degrees Fahrenheit above normal. Over 130 bushfires were crackling over Australia in early September. A veteran Australian fire expert warns climate change makes the risk much worse, and it may break down the country's fire defense system eventually. And now, strangely, a change high above Antarctica makes this year's fire season even more ominous. We have reached Greg Mullins, former Commissioner of Fire and Rescue for New South Wales, for 13 years until his retirement in 2017. Greg has represented Australia for groups of Asian fire chiefs and the United Nations. He currently sits on the Climate Council, the publicly funded climate watchdog. From Sydney, Greg Mullins, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Hi, Alex. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. So, Greg, you've been directing bushfires for a long time. 
What is different in the last couple of years? Well, look, I've I've been fighting fires since 1972, and my father before me um, was a volunteer wildland firefighter from 1955. And we watched as the climate in Australia changed, and particularly in the mid-1990s. Now, after California had its 1993 firestorm, we had our 1994 firestorm in January that year. Um, about 800 fires in the state of New South Wales alone, millions of acres burnt, um, hundreds of homes lost. Now, that came out of the blue. You can normally see the indicators of a bad season coming along, and I remember my father just shaking his head and saying, I, I just didn't see this coming. And look, before that, scientists were starting to sound the alarm about climate change. I had a deep interest in ecology and the environment and fire, of course, and I'd been talking to a lot of scientists and they started to explain how just a tiny little increase in temperature changes everything and we're bearing the brunt of it here now. Here in the Pacific Northwest, we used to look forward to our summers, Greg, and now it's become a season that comes with a lot of worry and some fear. Uh, I've got a little emergency get-out-of-town-quick pack still sitting behind me. The season isn't quite over. Are Australians worried about the annual round of smoke and flames? Look, Alex, we are, and the reason, it's, it's always been a part of the landscape. It's one of the driest continents in the world here. Um, the outback, the centre of Australia is very arid. But around the coastal fringe, the forests and then the grasslands, very fire-prone. Now, in my state, I, I live in Sydney, um, the state of New South Wales on the east coast. Our bushfire season officially runs from 1st of October to 31st of March. Now, that was based on over a century of observations by meteorologists. We now start our season in the first week of August, two months earlier. Every year, we're getting major fires. And as you said in the introduction, we have over half a million acres on fire in the north of our state right now. Um, There's five major blazes that have been burning for weeks in remote areas, but about 30 homes have been lost already in our state, 17 just north of the border. This is unheard of, or it had been unheard of for decades, but it is our new normal. So people are very worried. Fires are penetrating into areas where they've never been before, and I mean wet, temperate rainforest, subtropical and tropical rainforest. Fires are burning very intensely through those areas because it's so dry. We're getting less rainfall, higher temperatures, stronger winds, and with the drier fuels, very, very intense fires that we're just not getting a grip on. I was shocked when a couple of years ago there were wildfires in northern Tasmania where you expect it to be a rainforest. They said some of those trees hadn't burned in a 1,000 or more years, and, and yet it appeared even there. Look, this is just shocking. So Tasmania, a big island to the... It's a southern state, but it's an island state to the south of Australia. Their major fire seasons used to be about 30 years apart, and it was quite rare. It wasn't seen as a really bushfire-prone state, um, but when they did get fires, they were big ones. They were normally on the east coast in dry sclerophyll forest. So a lot of Tasmania's highlands and wilderness and it's wet, temperate rainforest, old Gondwana um, forest that's been there for millions and millions of years, hosted dinosaurs, (laughs) 
that's how old it is, it's drying out. The reduction in rainfall over the last 20, 30 years is immense and it's now burning freely. And scientists have looked at the trees, the rings on the trees, the carbon record in the soil. They've never had intense fires like we've had in 2006, um, 2013, 2016, 2018, 2019. So you can see instead of 30 years apart, it's just about every year now we have major fires in Tasmania. So hewn pine trees, which can live to 3,000 years, um, the second oldest living things on the planet, they're burning and they won't come back. Um, they, they're not adapted to fire and scientists are saying, look, it's unlikely they'll grow back. And Greg, you've warned that if the fire season keeps extending like this, Australia's method of sharing firefighters and equipment could break down. Could you tell us about that, please? Yes, well, look, this is what's got every fire chief in Australia worried, and um, we're a bit different to the US and Canada. We we don't have local municipal fire departments. They're statewide. So my fire department, Fire and Rescue New South Wales, um, 340 fire stations, about 7,000 firefighters, 6,000 volunteers, big, big organisations. So there's not as many fire chiefs. We get together regularly. Uh, what the paradigm of firefighting in Australia has been for decades is um, a progressive onset of fire seasons from north to south. The state of Queensland would have a fire season starting in maybe late July, but not very severe. They very rarely lost homes there. They were fairly mild fires compared to the southern states. Um, we'd move into my state, New South Wales, around September, October. By then, Queensland could release their firefighters to come south to help us, and the southern states could help us. Our season would moderate a bit um, early in the next year, and we would go south and help, help the other states. What we're having now is simultaneous severe fire seasons and it's stopping us sending people across borders. The other thing that we're experiencing, we lease all of our large firefighting aircraft, um, C-130 Hercules, 737, 15,000-litre water bombers, Ericsson Sky Air Cranes. They come from North America. Um, now, the extending fire season in California is a problem for us because that equipment's not available like it used to be. Um, we had fires last year in August that destroyed homes, and again this year we didn't have the large aircraft. So in New South Wales, our government just bought a single 737. But even when all the leased aircraft arrived, there'll only be seven large aircraft in the whole of Australia with about four or five air cranes and then a whole lot of medium and small water bombers, fixed wing and rotary wing. And we're finding it's just not enough. So it's very difficult. It's a vast country with a relatively small population, very long distances. If we can't share firefighters, there's no one else nearby who can help us. Meanwhile, some dams in New South Wales have almost run dry this year. Winter rainfall was dismally low. Towns may run out of water. Tell us about the great drought that's afflicting Australia this year and the relationship of that to fires. Look, this is this is very, very worrying. So Sydney, which is population has a population of um, four and a half million, our major water supply dam is around 
48% fall now. We, we missed out on our winter rains. We've had some recent short, sharp rain events, which is how it happens now. They're not soaking long-term rains. We just have downpours, uh, which basically runs off and goes, goes into the ocean. We're not getting that rain over the catchments, but there's a lot of large towns and cities in New South Wales um, with populations of 30,000 up to 50,000. They're simply running out of water. Rivers have stopped flowing. Now, uh, people talked about the millennium drought, 2001, 2002, where we had massive wildfires. Uh, this is officially worse than that. It's In some areas, it's the worst drought on record. Um, our major river system, the Murray-Darling system that runs through a number of states, uh, has basically stopped flowing a lot of areas, massive fish kills, um, huge environmental damage. But they're bringing water by trucks and trains into some towns just so people have something to drink, digging bores. And in, for firefighters, um, if we get a structure fire in a small town that doesn't have water, we're, we don't use drinking water to put it out unless there's an exposure, another building around that might catch fire. The firefighters sit and let burn and just protect what's around it. So that's how serious it is. And with wildfires, um, massive areas of um, wildland, uh, it's just very, very difficult to fight the fires without water. So a lot of backfiring, backburning, a lot of dry firefighting with hand tools. But because the forests are so dry, a single spark and all the work you've done can be lost in, in minutes. So it's um, extremely difficult. But a couple of experts here on Radio Ecoshock, I recall, told us that simply having hot and dry conditions isn't enough to guarantee a bad fire season. You need an ignition source, and usually around here that's lightning, but it can be humans setting fire to clear fields or forests, and then there's arson is there a serious intentional fire setting problem in Australia? <laughs> Look, um, I, when I was commissioner or fire chief for the state, people would often ask me, what are the main causes of fire? And I'd say, well, there's three of them. It's men, women and children. Um, and that is, you know, that's, that, that is the case. People have accidents. They light fires deliberately for um, farmers, for example, burning off. At times of the year that for generations they could do that safely. Now they can't, and the fires are getting away. So a lot of the fires in the north of the state now are escaped burn-offs from farming activities. Um, there is arson that, uh, you know, I'd like to think that's reducing. Our, our police authorities have um, done a lot of good work there. We've done a lot of public education. But we are seeing more lightning strikes. Now, you spoke about Tasmania, 2016, there were literally hundreds of lightning strikes over weeks burnt out hundreds of thousands of acres of World Heritage rainforest. And this is becoming, with a warming environment, um, I'm not a meteorologist, but uh, there have been studies here saying the warmer, warmer atmosphere, more unstable atmosphere is leading to more dry storms with no rain. And with drier fuels fires are more likely to start when those lightning strikes hit a tree or hit a rock that um, has vegetation on it. So we're, we're getting more and more remote fires starting. Um, just last week, I think it was last week or the week before, 
up where we have these massive fires burning. A line of storms went through seven new fires in 20 minutes and no rain. So this is now a common thing. Where I live in Sydney, uh, for 50, almost 50 years, lightning fires almost unheard of. We have them regularly now. We have heard that from other scientists that we can expect more lightning in a hotter world. Our guest is the veteran fire and emergency expert from Australia, Greg Mullins. We're watching over an early start to fire season there as climate change continues. At the end of August, the atmosphere high above the South Pole heated up. Greg, can you explain to our listeners what is sudden stratospheric warming? Yes, well, Alex, this is something new to me, um, so I'm not entirely across it, but we, there's, there's three major drivers in Australia of um, rainfall, heat, um, and ultimately fire danger. So the first one is the El Nino effect, La Nina and El Nino. So if we have an El Nino, it's um, tropical waters in the Pacific, if the trade winds run from east to west, and that brings moisture over Australia, um, if you get a change in ocean temperatures, it does the opposite. It's in, it, it can turn westerly and it stops a lot of the rainfall coming down to Australia. We have the Indian Ocean Dipole, which again is about the warming of the ocean um, to the northwest of Australia. If it's cooler, there's less moisture, comes across less cloud, less rainfall. So... Now, we don't have an El Nino, um, and I'll get back to the southern annular mode in a second. I know that's what you're interested in. Um, normally, when we have a drought like we're in now, we have an El Nino. So it's unusual that we don't, and we're getting fire seasons that are very destructive that in the past only happened during El Nino years, but now they're just sort of normal. Um, the Indian Ocean Dipole is in positive mode, that's stopping a lot of rain reaching the east coast of Australia. So then we have um, the southern annular mode. Now, that's all about the westerly wind flow around Antarctica. Now, normally it's pretty tight, um, stays to the south of Australia. Sometimes it, it's let off the leash and the winds come north and it actually brings more moisture. But what's been happening more and more is that those winds are contracting closer to Antarctica and it stops that moisture coming across the continent, particularly the southeast, where we've had 15 to 20% reduction in rainfall over decades and this year up to 50% reduction in a lot of areas. Um, so that's the southern annular mode and um, the stratospheric warming over Antarctica, which, you know, I do admit I'm, I don't fully understand. I'm not a meteorologist. Uh, but apparently that could cause us to have drier, um, but more windy conditions in southern Australia, which is our most hazardous place for, for bushfires. So we're bracing ourselves. We're already in drought. We've had record high temperatures. We had the highest fire danger index as ever recorded in September in New South Wales and Queensland, two adjoining states, on the 6th of September. So the first week of September, uh, not the last week of September, we had what we call catastrophic fire conditions. In the US, it's called red flag conditions, but way off the scale. And that's when our massive fires really took off. So it's months and months ahead. So all these ingredients are just... They're pointing to a horror scenario... Everybody's really worried about this summer. 
because we're not in summer yet. We're just into spring, beginning spring, and we've we've got massive fire problems already. I'm also trying to understand this sudden stratospheric warming thing. It it appears that the polar vortex reverses, and it it happens fairly often in the northern hemisphere. I understand, and we just had one that dragged a heat wave west from Europe over Greenland, sort of against the normal jet stream. But the the only other sudden warming that I could find happened at the South Pole appears to be in 2002, and now we're seeing one again. And I wonder if this large-scale disturbance will happen more often and affect Australia uh, more often as well. Well, look, this is, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not really au fait with this, but with the this is the problem. Um, we're having more and more heat waves. 2002, when the climatologists told us that was the last time it happened here, that made all of the fire chiefs sit back in horror because that was one of our really bad fire years. So we lost, there were lots of homes lost that year, um, massive fires across Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia, Western Australia. So there were massive fires in 2002, basically across the whole continent. Uh, and if we're looking at that, after we've been in severe drought since 2017, um, our water supplies are dwindling and non-existent in many areas. <laughs> we're really worried, really, really worried. I hear what you're saying, and it, it sounds pretty scary to me. I, I would like to get to, you're with the Climate Council in Australia, and I didn't know a lot about it, but could you tell our listeners what it is and the interesting way that council got going? Yes, so it was an interesting um, thing. So uh, around a bit over five years ago, um, an incoming Conservative government decided that the Climate Commission, with the Chief Climate Commissioner, um, Dr Tim Flannery, who was a former Australian of the Year, a scientist who rang the alarm bells on climate change years ago, has written a lot of books. He was the Chief Climate Commissioner, and a number of other people were Climate Commissioners. Um, they'd come up with a carbon price, emissions were going down. So the incoming Prime Minister, one of his first acts within a couple of weeks was to abolish the Council. I won't say he, he had a famous statement or an infamous statement about uh, what he thought of climate change. I won't repeat it because he used a word starting with C, ending with P. Uh, <laughs> but it was, uh, it was rubbish. He didn't believe in it. So within weeks, the community had rallied and crowdfunded the Climate Council to re-emerge. And so it's community-funded, and it's about keeping government honest. So it's a lot of experts in various areas, um, climate scientists, of course, people like me, I'm a um, fire expert, uh, natural disasters. So we write a lot of papers. We interpret the scientific papers and make it digestible. So and look, if people, um, people can Google it, climatecouncil.org.au, um, there's a lot of papers on different things there, but we keep try to keep the government honest, and we're not doing very well with that. We've just heard our Prime Minister telling the world that he doesn't need to take much action on climate change, but he'll clean the oceans up with plastic, and that'll fix everything. So that's what we're up against here. So Climate Council is working with other bodies to try and get real action on climate change, which is the base cause of what we're facing. 
Is the current government listening when it comes to increasing fire danger as this warming continues? No. <laughs> they're in denial. Um, it's So they're ideologically driven. It's all about business and profit. So our government is telling the world that they're doing their bit with the Paris Accord. Our missions in Australia have gone up each year for the last five years of this government, not down. So the way they're going to meet the Paris targets is to use leftover credits from the Kyoto Agreement because we overachieved on our extremely low targets. I think second lowest emissions targets in the Kyoto Agreement. So it's dodgy accounting and it's an embarrassment to most Australians who know what's going on. Um, so Australia is not doing its bit on the world stage to help reduce emissions. And the job of the Climate Council is to try and raise awareness of this. And we had massive rallies in all of the major cities last week, school children, but people went on strike from their jobs. Some companies shut down for the day to go and show their support. So there's a massive awareness, over 80% in Australia, of the climate problem and the need for action, but our government remains in denial. That sounds very familiar. Here in Canada, we're in a similar situation. Perhaps the talk is better in Canada, but the actual action of expanding the tar sands pipelines uh, puts us right in with Australia in expanding coal for export. We're, we're in the same basket. My wonder is whether the bush that is burning in Australia, it's used to fire. There's been a long history of fire there, in, in some parts of Australia at least, but maybe it'll fail to recover with climate change and, and maybe that desert that fills the interior of your continent will expand. Your thoughts? That, that's an interesting thought, Alex, because each area has a fire regime and the fire regime, um, ecologists say it, it, it's based on history going back tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. So species of plants evolve that can withstand the frequency and intensity of fire that's common over that huge time frame. Now, over a short time frame of some decades, the fires are becoming more intense and more frequent. So we're seeing um, where I live, I live near the coast in Sydney. I'm looking, looking out my window at the ocean at the moment. Beautiful, but we have coastal heath land, uh, native heath land that burns very intensely and if it doesn't burn within about 20 years, um, it can start to break down because it needs fire to germinate new seeds. But if you burn it more than once every five years, after about the third fire, there's no seed stocks left in the soil and um, that, it can be eradicated forever from, from certain areas. And we're starting to see that. We're starting to see certain species... Uh, removed from areas because of the frequent burning and what come what tend to come in are weeds and grasses that regenerate every year and will burn every year so it actually increases our fire problem where fuel reduction burning or wildfires would remove the problem for three to five years as it regrew um, over time if you get these um, fire weeds come in and ferns and things you've changed the whole biota, and you lose animal species as well. I had a plan for this show for September and unexpectedly ended up having to cover fires in the Amazon, in Alaska and Siberia. We're talking in Angola, Indonesia, terrible smoke problems there and fires. And so I'm 
seeing that fires have become an international emergency, Greg Mullins, what are you hearing from other fire and emergency experts around the world? Look, it, it, there's concern everywhere. And I, I've been, you know, believe it or not, I've been over to the United Kingdom twice during my career to help them gear up to fight bushfires. And in, in England, really? It, it just never happened. And fundamental things like um, the structural firefighting uniforms were too hot because the temperatures were going up there. Their hoses were too large and um, going into areas where there was no reticulated water, so they had to have smaller diameter hoses and they had to start to use aircraft. Command and control of large events, you know, talking to other fire chiefs about how they do that. But look, I'll point to California as I, I worry about us facing the same as California did last year and the year before. I've fought fires in California back in 1995. I've got friends in the fire service there. I, I speak to Ken Pimlot, who recently retired as um, Cal Fire Chief. And I've seen what bark beetles have done to the forests in California, how a lot of dead trees has increased the fuel loads, um, the longer seasons. And look at the number of homes that were lost last year. In, in Paradise um, and other, other townships and the massive fires. I just keep breaking records of the largest fire, Mendocino Fire, the Camp Fire. Uh, you know, thousands and thousands of homes. And I, if this isn't ringing alarm bells around the world for people and having fires in places like Greenland and Sweden and Canary Islands and then massive losses of lives in fire-prone areas that are getting worse, like Greece, Portugal... Spain, that you know, nearly 100 dead in California last year, 173 dead in Australia in 2009, um, over one afternoon, thousands of homes lost. It's just supercharged, and you, you can no longer sit back and say, nothing to see here, move on everybody, there's no such thing as climate change. So world leaders like in Australia, like in the USA, I have to say, I think it's really up to people to take local action, like California is doing, like my state is doing in Australia, bypass the national governments who are in denial, and we have to take action to save our planet. Good message, Greg. Thank you. We've been speaking with fire and rescue expert Greg Mullins. He is a world-recognized expert on fires, currently with the Climate Council of Australia. Thank you so much for bringing us up to date. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for getting this message out. Okay, and uh, that was that interview from um, Radio Ecoshock last Sunday. That program, 6 o'clock Sunday mornings on this station. Maybe it's on podcast. You can hear it a bit at time. But uh, mm. it's a very good program, and I think that interview showed the depth at which they go. Wow. And it wasn't wasn't pleasant listening, but it was. I think it's an important interview, and that's why rather than... We're not just being slothful here this morning and sitting around doing nothing but listening to that. But I think it was important to replay it, uh, Meg. But to be fair, we were just sitting around listening to that. We were just sitting around listening to that, yeah. A fascinating interview. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's just, I think it spoke for itself. Okay, look, we'll take a break and we'll come back and we're going to talk. We're going to cheer people up even more. But telemarine toxic waste up and the latest developments with Helen Vandenberg.
From October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. Looking to connect with your local community and do something rewarding? Well, volunteering to lead a neighbourly ride could be exactly what you're after. The short 40-minute group rides are for all ages and ride levels. Help people build their confidence, feel supported while safely exploring the local areas of Brunswick, Carlton, Fitzroy and Northcote by bike. Volunteers receive free ride leader training, so go to neighbourlyride.com to contact us about volunteering. A 3CR supporter. All right, on the line, Helen Vandenberg. Uh, Helen's got a cold this morning, so, well, she's had it for a few days, obviously, but so let's hope she can get through this because it's important stuff she's going to talk about. Helen, did you manage to hear the previous interview, by the way? Oh, I took pages of notes. Oh. Yeah, it, to, um, once, it's, once it's up on your podcast, I will be putting a notice of it on our Friends of Steel Creek page. Yeah, Lovely. it's pretty devastating stuff, isn't it? Well, for someone who helped organise the first rally about climate change in 1989... Wow. Uh, you know, the Rainbow Alliance was around in those days, yeah. a coalition of people, and we'd had a 10-day mobilisation and a walk from the northeast, the east of Melbourne, right around Melbourne. That's when I met Colleen Hartland. And... Uh, yeah, and of course we got drowned out on the rally day, so the crowd of two to 5,000 didn't eventuate. It became 500 drowned rats walking down <laughs> the street and the festival part of it was washed out too. But nevertheless, um, we had been talking, we'd been running forums on sustainable cities, uh, the need for change in planning, water use. So it's been a long time getting the awareness, but fantastic that the Climate Commission um, crowdfunded itself yeah. so that we have someone speaking the truth. In the meantime, it's like having the emperor with no clothes on in mm. charge of the place, isn't it? It is, mm. it is. However, yeah. I think the, the power is with the people so long as we organise well enough. Well, we've said for a long time on this program that, uh, and I think the march the other day, I mean, it was enormous mm-hmm. the other Friday, and um, I think uh, it's clear that the people are light years ahead of the, the politicians on this issue and we've just got to get the politicians to catch up a bit. Yes, well, there was a beautiful memorial for Penny Wetton on um, Sunday, and Janet spoke about how Penny had been... Penny led the CSIRO Climate Panel Reporting Group. I've forgotten the proper name, I beg your pardon. Um, But she said Penny was very worried about this fire season, Mm. and... um, when you think of how much Jan- Janet, of course, being Janet Rice, I presume the Green Senator. Yes, yep. she must. She must have had such a deep knowledge of the danger, mm. and mm. that's a heavy burden for people to take and then be ignored, basically. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. But at least that report of theirs was acknowledged with the Nobel Prize. Mm. Yeah. 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 So can't okay. say we haven't had the intellectual. 
arguments and the facts and the science behind us all the time. We have. We've mm. just got stupidity and power. That's well, the, it's not the idiots making the decisions, unfortunately. Well, no, it's vested interests. Well, mm. yes, okay. I'll take your take your point there. Touche, <laughs> um, Helen. You're. I have on... a suggestion for your technicians that they take a sound recording of you. Um, pouring tea, and then they make you pour the tea before you get in the studio, and they just play the tape, and then they don't have to fret, and you can have your tea, and the listeners can still hear this. We can have a constant background. So that's constant. my suggestion for taking the stress out of things, which is we what have, I usually like to do. We can have a However, constant. In Marine, I feel sometimes I'm the speaker who brings more stress. No, it's a great idea, Helen, because we could have a constant dripping of tea in the background. Yeah. Yes, it's wonderful. Yeah, well, uh, yes. don't do that. People will be rushing to the toilet. Um, but I do think on an OH&S issue, they have a point, Kevin. And well, we've to been the told. union, yeah. I think you should listen to them. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. You're, we, we're sorry you can't go on this morning. It's a, um, look, you're on to talk about the topic, which you've done many times before, the Tullamarine Toxic Waste Dump uh, some years ago when it was finally closed after long struggle. Uh, the company, and it's now um, run by um, the mob. Clean Away. Clean Away. Um, they promised to clean it up completely, and of course it... The oh, latest... no, 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 no. When they oh, could wrong. bring up the I'm, toxic I'm being oil... I'm three times now already. <laughs> yeah, you're, in a, you're having a good run, Kev. Oh, that's, right, that's right. <laughs> um, when they could bring up the toxic oils and offer to shandy it and sell it as fuel, they were quite happy to have over... Um, Oh, Lord, the number of millions of litres escapes me. It was at least 60, could have been more, million litres of oil and sell it off. But we pointed out as it was PCB contaminated, that's not legal. The EPA agreed to it, but anyhow, the upshot of it was that a ministerial intervention created a panel and the panel found uh, no environmental merit in the process anyhow. But before they could come out with a full written report, CleanAway pulled it back. But since then, everybody's become convinced it's okay to leave that oil in the ground and we said actually at the bottom of this 29 hectare hole there's a pool of water and on top of which there's a lot of alnapal floating then the this oil was detected well, in i the ask you this every time helen just a very sorry helen i ask you this, this every is time the real but, key oh. to the issue is that oil and how it dissolves in the water and off gases and that's where your um, risk is coming from. I always get you to explain to people what L-Napple is, by the way, just to... Oh, liquid non-aqueous, a liquid non-aqueous phase leachate. It's, look, briefly, toxic oil floating on top of the water. You look down at water, you've got a sheen, you've got a problem, track it. Well, CleanAway hasn't been doing such a good tracking. Now, once the pollution abatement, uh, there was a... the dump was closed, a post-closure management plan was drawn up based on the fact that the auditors were saying the Elnapal poses a risk to the groundwater, unfit for groundwater usage for irrigation, stock watering, certainly couldn't be used for recreational use, so you can't pull it up and put it, fill up your swimming pool with it because if kids were swimming in the water and circulating the, the water quickly, the, there's a risk that they'd be getting these gases, which is not good for them. So... Um, then they capped it, and we said, take the oil out first because all the bores were running beautifully and it was easy to do because we were worried that if they capped it, 
everything would start slowing down and it would be harder to get it up. That is now the case, that it is harder to get it up. We maintain that it is the major source of the contamination that's generating the gases and the groundwater pollution, that it still should be sucked out, even if it has to be done for 50 years, it should still be brought up. That's an argument that Clean Away and the EPA are not buying, and one that we haven't resigned from yet. However, what is intriguing about this audit report is that um, the well, auditor you, you has... You just raised that, that this audit some, report, just to pick oh, over that... The we, auditor is yeah. an independent licensed person by the EPA who is paid by the company. The company is obliged to do a series of... They have to suck out the water that's at the bottom of the dump and find out its chemical character. They have to keep monitoring the groundwater flows to see which area it's going... And some testing in these over 121 bores is done monthly, some quarterly. And some specific tests, some bores have been established particularly, there's a line that's checking that the contaminated heavy metal salts and other things from the dump are not getting into the Mooney Ponds Creek because we're in the unique situation of the groundwater supposed to flow southeast, south and southwest um, as actually flowing north and northeast towards the creek. Right, so this is there's there's a problem. So they have to have a series of bores along the creek to monitor that. Then there's another a set of bores that was established because they want to monitor what the gas is doing. Um, then they've had to put in bores in the uh, 39 hectare space adjacent to the toxic dump, which Cleanway want to sell. And there's a lot of bores there. And, and this, they've actually this, got some in residential again, This is near areas. the airport, Helen, isn't it? I mean, just for yeah, people who wonder where this is. Yeah. Southwest is the airport. Hmm. And they've actually got bores in car parks of the airport. Now, Cleanaway has said that they can't get access to some of these private bore, um, to this private land. The auditor wasn't impressed with that. An email from 2013, he thought that was worth challenging and they should do more. And then there was an email in 2017. But I mean, there's gaps in the data this time, 15, 16 and 17, as well as from 13. He's not impressed with that. So he's saying, make a bigger effort and go and get it. Because after all, there was an agreement that they could put the bores there. So what happened that made the landowners stop? Or, you know, it's a bit, you know, pardon my cynicism. Mm. Um, anyhow, I won't go any further with that. So they've not complied with the monitoring program. That is a breach of the post-closure management plan. In other words, that's a finable offence. Because if you can't do something on your post-closure management plan, you must notify the EPA. They didn't do that either. Neither can he understand why some of the um, monitoring is voluntary, right, that EPA... That Cleanaway, EPA never asked them to do it, but Cleanaway took it on because the community were pestering them. So he doesn't know why any of that's voluntary. It should automatically be included. And we've been having a battle with the Cleanaway over the stormwater management um, off the surface of the dump. And, you know, they said, oh, well, we'll look at doing something better. They presented a beautiful plan, got endorsement from Mooney Ponds Creek and our um, reference committee, and then they decided at $1.3 million it was too expensive, they weren't going to do anything. Well, anyhow, he says the stormwater management has to be part of the post-closure management plan. So he's made numerous recommendations of how to improve the post-closure management plan. And because he cannot get the data that is required, consistent data over the three-year period, 
he cannot make conclusions about the trend. So therefore, he has raised the level of risk from low to medium. And he has also said that as they haven't complied with the best practice environmental management procedure, which is a standard they had to achieve, that they should have um, a management audit 2020 and 2021, and that they should, as they don't seem to forget tests that they have to do on a monthly basis, then maybe they shouldn't give them quarterly ones, maybe they should all be made monthly. So I don't think in the long run CleanAway has saved any money from this, and they have now exposed themselves to the likelihood of sanctions from the EPA because they didn't notify breaches that they should have. So, Helen, you, your group, the Tullamarine Toxic Dump Action Group, have written a letter to the chair and the board of the EPA. Have you received any reply? Oh, yes. Um, we're meeting with them on Monday at Hume Council. Okay. Um, I won't go into anything other than that at the moment. Okay. Mm. Okay. But the you mentioned about the fact that after I was they... too angry to speak to them before that. <laughs> I thought I needed to be civil by the time I met with them. Well, you know that's well, always they were a going good to have try. a teleconference and unpack the audit for us. Oh, okay, like you just right. haven't understood it properly. That's right. Yes, you you missed a bit. Uh, like... Look, I, there's a lot of things I don't get right, but yeah. I, who doesn't know BS when they hear it? When they when they said the 1.3 million, I think is what you said for a particular job to clean up. Uh, was, oh, the stormwater yeah, the storm was, yeah. was too um, was too expensive for the company. Uh, is there an upper limit on what the community health and the environmental health is worth? Clearly, in Cleanaway's mind, it's not worth much at all. Yeah. Well, that's my conclusion. If they want to correct me, that's fine. Yeah, and you, you say now the EPA could take action against them, but knowing the oh, EPA, absolutely. will absolutely non-compliance with them. Here, I've got the conclusions of this audit. But will it? It's got a... They don't have a choice, Kevin. Ooh, they've got a long record. They're either of the regulator or they're not the regulator. <laughs> now, do they want the whole state of Victoria, who is already fairly sceptical about the competence of EPA? I mean, why is it that we have so many strange illegal waste piles? Where, if you were a, a person who wanted to duck and weave the law, you would pick a place where there isn't much scrutiny to set up business. Mm. Clearly, that's a conclusion some people in Victoria came to, which is why. And which city has the most illegal um, toxic waste fires? Hume. Who has the toxic dump? Hume. Who has um, the airport? Hume. Who has the freeway that ferries people backwards and forwards to it? And And you've got all that... Um, traffic emissions too. Let me so guess. how much of a pollution burden does the city of Hume have to bear on behalf of the good of Melbourne? Well, it hasn't done the whole of Melbourne any good for them to have been picked as a place where you can, you know, set up your illegal stockpiles. And before all of this, these toxic fires became an issue, there were fires out at Camberfield, right? And there was a person in our group who was notifying the EPA and Hume Council at the time of this illegal waste pile that was building up. And in two years, they took no action. And her constant theme was, this will be a dangerous fire. And it was. Mm. Mm. But it's not until the inner west also blew up that suddenly the tox... And, you know, I mean, how many times does Melbourne have to have 
a plume of to- a toxic plume over it. I mean, and we're so lucky that plume didn't settle on the ground. Well, you know, just we mentioned on this program last week again a another it was more pollution in Stony Creek just the week before last. Um, oh yeah. By a mob called Mar Chem Australasia, and they they sent a, a waste. The 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 waste was from some bottle of dye, a five litre bottle of dye, which blew over and ended up in the in Stony Creek. I mean, it's it's copying it all the time. Yeah, well, we've had red paint in Steel Creek, and we've had um, milk donated by one of three. Um, cheese processing plants over in Tullamaroon. Um, you know, I mean, there's so much sloppiness in this state that has gone unacted. Un- now, you know, we will hear all the beautiful speak about the new act is coming in July 2020. Don't get community rights till 2021, which is when, if they're not doing their job, we can take them to the magistrate's court. Well, you know... How long does it take to write these regulations? They're Mm. out for consultation now. And is the audit process into which we have put many hours of thought and made recommendations, is this audit audit process going to be any better? Because we think it's wrong that the company chooses the auditor. We think the EPA's got a list of auditors. We think the company should pay for the audit, but the money should be put into the fund in EPA and then EPA allocate the auditor and then that the auditor should come back and report directly to the EPA first and not to the company first. Mm. Yeah, that's the old story. Right? That's going, one yeah. thing. We also think that, you know, I, my question to the EPA is how come they manage, if you've got best practice environmental management plans and they're supposed to be writing an annual report every year into you, which they send into you, what's wrong with those annual reports was there non-compliance um, written up in any of those? I don't think mm. it was, because otherwise the EPA would have known about it. But you have to remember, too, that when we got the head of the EPA to come and speak to our reference committee, they said they only read about 10% of audit reports. Mm. Oh. So 90% of audit reports never even get checked. And don't forget, we found an error in an audit report where they were out by a factor of one million, and we didn't believe it when when it was found, so we took it into Melbourne Uni and got mathematicians in there to verify it, and the auditor hadn't picked it up. Mm. Mm. Well, that's, so those figures are know, pretty frightening, though. That you know, so much. Well, obviously, they, they could be missing so much of what's going on. Yeah, well, this was, and and we've had various spikes in chemicals reported at different times, and you're giving wishy-washy answers about. Um, in response to them, and there's no serious investigation of them. One time they tried to tell us there'd been a fire somewhere and the wind was blowing that way. I mean, and the wind records show the wind was blowing in the opposite direction on the day, which we already knew. But they still stand there and tell you that. But the question was, will the EPA take action? And you sort of said yes, but now you're giving us reasons why they probably won't. (laughs) Well, that's the situation we live with chronically. Yeah. Flip the coin. Well, I don't think they've got an option this time. This time, instead of just telling the officers that are there, I mean, the, the, the point is here, clean away management, and I got this minuted in a, in a meeting once, that I didn't feel that the people on the ground in clean away had sufficient support from the management. Because after all, every time they reshape the company, out oh, comes a new promoted person and he's going to be a caring person and he's going to in you know, keep an eye on this situation. He'll be coming to these meetings. 
never to see them again. Oh, they rise up into the ranks. Forget all about it. <laughs> it's, um, well, yeah, I think it's about story, time yeah. that I think the EPA has no option but to get clean away management in there. This is a company issue. Their company credibility is on the line at Tulla. It's on the line over at Ravenhall too, if you really want to know, and any other landfill they hold. But <laughs> this is too serious. This is Victoria's largest toxic dump where the owners are not even meeting the post-closure management plan or Victoria's stated post-closure uh, best practice mm. um, uh, for... We'll have I to mean, wrap up in a minute, Helen, if there's anything that you want to cover before you go or if there's any way you want people, listeners, to know how to support the action group. Um, follow the, our Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Um, donations are always welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, I mean, here we are, a bunch of residents battling a large company in the EPA and still without being qualified in a lot of areas, you know, just because you can read and think. We're holding a company accountable when we haven't seen, apart from environmental justice having our back Mm. and the Western Region Environment Centre, you know, letting Harry dedicate so much time to us. Mm. This has been a battle of the small against the big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will continue to hold them accountable because that area is now getting full of young families. Mm-hmm. And what's that, what's that address, that Facebook address you mentioned? Um, I've got it here. Uh, so Facebook, um, Facebook.com slash T-T-T-D-A-G, Inc. Tullamarine yep. Toxic Dump Action Group, Inc. Yeah, terminate Tyler toxic. Oh, dump terminate. Group. I don't know what that extra T was for. Triple T Dag Inc. Triple T Dag Inc. <laughs> well, terminate's what we've got to do here now, which is a bit yep, of a pity. Because Helen, out. thanks for that. We've had an easy morning. The pre-review, we pre-recorded the previous thing, and then you just answered, you just went on, and we didn't have to ask too many questions at all this morning. So thank it was you great. very much for your support over yeah. the years, and thank heavens we have a free press. Good right. on you, well, Helen. We'll, we'll follow up to see what happens after next Monday's meeting too. Oh yeah, that's going to yeah. be fun. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. Bye. Helen Vandenberg, there, she's overcoming her cold, and uh, well, she didn't yeah. seem any worse the way for it <laughs> no, at all. No, that's right. No. Um, and um, we've got to move on because the next show has to start dead on ten. So um, yeah, we better yeah. go to a song, and uh, I'll play some Nina Simone. How about that? And housing next week. That's right.